In today's episode, we're going to pick up where we left off with Wayne Jett. So this is part two. Hope you enjoy it and thank you for listening. the time of the Great Depression and uh, uh, the things that have done that, that got Roosevelt started in terms of what he was able to do for the big banks and knocking out their competition, uh, also in terms of uh, hurting the middle class. Now, if we can uh, go ahead to uh, other things that he did, uh, he continued the gold buying all eight of his first eight years in office. Every year, as an average during that period of time, he bought uh, something like an average of 265 metric tons of gold each year. Uh, He bought, within those eight years, more than three times as much gold as the United States had accumulated in all of its years from the creation of the United States up through 1930. That's including even the 20s when we were growing at such a fast rate, uh, the entire 19th, uh, uh, entire 20th century and so forth. Uh, he bought uh, a total of 13,185.3 metric tons of gold in those first eight years. And uh, in order to do that, he was taking money out of the U.S. economy in taxes and in mortgage bonds borrowing, uh, paying interest to borrow the money to buy gold, to put the gold in the treasury. And here is the killer on the thing. He made certain that the U.S. Treasury did not monetize, that the Federal Reserve did not monetize the gold that he bought. It was secreted away in violation of the gold standard, which required that when the nation increases its gold supply, it increases its money supply to enable its economy to buy more things from other countries in order to make sure that the monetization of gold stays in effect, no matter which country has it. Uh, He made sure that that didn't happen. And I'll tell you, uh, if we have the time, uh, how he did that in a particular year. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you right now while it's in mind. In 1937, early 1937, uh, he got, this was just after he was elected to his second term. Uh, Somebody tipped Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt off that Uh, the Treasury had actually had an inflow of gold based on international trade. There was an inflow of gold uh, that I interpret as being from Europe of $7 billion. $7 billion in gold, a lot of gold. So uh, I attributed in 1937 probably to uh, fears of war coming in Europe and Europeans... uh, liquidating their factories or liquidating their businesses and transferring the money into the United States, which results in a gold flow because they, they're changing their European currency into dollars and that uh, requires a gold flow into the country. Well, as soon as Roosevelt was tipped on that, 
he notified Morgenthau at Treasury that this is hot, hot gold that could be taken out of the country at any time, and therefore it should not be monetized because it would possibly disrupt the recovery uh, by adding money that could then be taken out later and would hurt us. And so uh, Morgenthau was told by Roosevelt to contact the Federal Reserve and make sure that that goal was not monetized. Well, Morgenthau supposedly indicated in this diary that uh, he didn't think that was a very good idea or that sound reasoning, but nevertheless, he contacted the Fed. Uh, the Fed had a new chairman from Utah, uh, Mariner Eccles, appointed by Roosevelt. But Ro Eccles uh, responded to Morgenthau that he thought it was a terrible idea, that there was no reason not to monetize that gold, and it would help the economy greatly. In fact, Eccles wrote back a strong letter to uh, Morgenthau saying so and refusing to De demonetize that gold, or at least uh, stating that it was uh, something that should not be done. Uh, so as a result, with the loggerheads uh, between the, the Fed chairman uh, and Treasury and Roosevelt, Roosevelt convenes a meeting of the three, and of course, Eccles in the meeting with Roosevelt buckles and agrees that they will demonetize that gold. Well, so they go back and labor over the oars of writing the regulations, providing for that demonetization. And when the regulations were published, Eccles says he was embarrassed to see or say that, that uh, the regulations not only demonetized that $7 billion worth of gold, it also demonetized all the gold bought, even the gold bought from U.S. domestic mines. So uh, that is as clear an indication as you can find and as, as you need to be certain that Roosevelt wanted to minimize the supply of money in the country uh, to the greatest extent possible. Even the gold coming in from commercial transfers from Europe was not permitted to be monetized, nor was the gold bought from U.S. domestic mines. So he wanted to have as little money in the, in the country as possible. And of course, the symptoms in the country with him borrowing uh, from the country and also taxing the country so highly, the symptoms everyone would tell you if you ask how things are here, they'd say nobody has any money. That was exactly the condition that Roosevelt produced purposely. It could not have been by accident, uh, in my estimation. Uh, it was so uh, carefully designed and so effectively enforced. Uh, it was a deliberate effort to cause severe deflation so that people with wealth could buy real assets at two to three to five cents on the dollar. And that's exactly the conditions that made, for example, J. Paul Getty, uh, one of the richest men in the world, supposedly, 
uh, at least by the reported reputation. I, I doubt that he was, but he became a giant factor in the oil business because he said, I could hardly believe it. I could buy oil, the best in the world, any place I wanted for five cents on the dollar or less. Uh, that is the product of deliberately caused deflation. And uh, uh, that's what Roosevelt did. Now, uh, that's not all he did. So let me try uh, to add a few more things. Uh, um, I've mentioned the taxes, of, uh, but once they got the Federal Reserve Reform Act passed in 1935, it allowed Roosevelt to uh, appoint more members of the Federal Reserve Board, supposedly, in order to be able to control the board. Well, the first meeting that that uh, FDR control uh, board had of the Fed was uh, in August of 1937. Not, uh, let's see, August of 36. I'm sorry, August of 36. And the first thing they did uh, was increase the reserve requirements of banks by 50%. Hmm. Now, there was no banking crisis in the country at that time. Uh, and the banks were fully loaned up. Uh, therefore, they had to, uh, in order to increase the reserves, they had to foreclose loans, even if they were in payment status. And so, of course, uh, there were many more businesses shut down. There were many more uh, homes lost and more small businesses lost, more farms lost, farms, foreclosed yep, upon. Yep. All of those people thrown out of their properties, uh, even though they were not in trouble because of this uh, absolutely outrageous action by the FDR-controlled Federal Reserve Board. Uh, after his reelection in the fall of 36, uh, in January of uh, 37, the, the Fed board did exactly the same thing again by increasing reserve requirements another 33%. So in those two actions of August of 36 and January 37, there was an effective increase in reserve requirements, a doubling reserve requirements for the banks. Wow. And therefore, cutting in half their lending capacity. And so uh, you can see why so many more people were thrown on the streets, thrown on the roads, the roads to California for many in the country, trying to find some place to find work or find a, a way to support families and feed them. And uh, why were they doing this? Because according to social science studies done later by, years later by uh, social scientists in other countries, the only two I found were one in Germany and one in Russia. The one in Germany uh, concluded that more than three million at least Americans had died of starvation uh, during the years of the Great Depression. The one in Russia decided, uh, had computed that more than six million uh, had died in the Great Depression in America alone. Not This is not worldwide, this is America alone. And uh, uh, 
Uh, it's important to understand that uh, these numbers have to be put into effect with, uh, for example, such programs as, as um, the management of prices for milk and, uh, and meat and food and so forth. One of the first things Roosevelt ordered in 33 in his so-called uh, efforts to get farm prices up was that six million small or baby pigs had to be slaughtered and buried so they wouldn't grow into meat animals to feed people because that would keep the price of pork down. Uh, they poured milk into the, uh, into the ground uh, so that it would get milk prices up uh, and so forth. Um, this is the kind of uh, just uh, out and out evil that was done when uh, clearly the prices on uh, pork and beef and grain and so forth and so on were manipulated so badly in the markets uh, by uh, controlling uh, or hitting prices the worst when the harvest come in and things of that sort. Uh, it was uh, uh, a very uh, deliberate thing to do. And uh, another reason why uh, most certainly Franklin Roosevelt was not a traitor to his class. He was a traitor to the electorate that trusted his words when they put him in office. Um, let me uh, mention to you, for example, one of the things that happened in 1939. Now, by 1939, as I told you earlier, the 38 election Democrats had lost 83 seats in the House, and so the, the bloom on the rose of the Franklin Roosevelt presidency uh, was definitely uh, uh, getting a, a loose in the leaf. And uh, uh, the Democrats wanted to have nothing to do with raising taxes again, as Roosevelt proposed. Uh, but in March, March 5th, I believe it was, of, uh, it was a Wednesday, the first week in March, of 1939, Roosevelt had just returned from a, a naval cruise for relaxation, and uh, Morgenthau wrote in his diary that he was able to get a, a luncheon appointment with him on Wednesday, and he says that he told Roosevelt that uh, uh, he had prepared a plan for tax cuts that if adopted, as he proposed, <clears throat> that uh, we could have an economic boom within a week. Uh, I'm sorry, within a month. Uh, and that he wanted to bring that plan over to uh, the White House with his top advisor and go over it with the president. Uh, because he said, boy, if we could get this uh, uh, depression licked, uh, you'd be a hero. You'd be the uh, greatest president ever in history. And uh, I want to help you do that. And so I'd like to come over. So they arranged Roosevelt, uh, reluctantly agreed to it. But they went over two days later. And uh, Morgenthau took with him uh, John Haynes, his uh, undersecretary, and the tax plan. And they sat down. Uh, with Roosevelt to uh, 
uh, go over it. Now, as, uh, as Morgenthau had told Roosevelt at lunch on Wednesday, he said, I want to bring over to you when I come, I, I want to bring you a little copy of a sign that I've got on my desk. A constituent brought it in and when people come in and see me, they love it. It says, does it help the recovery? He said, people come in and see that sign and uh, they know that we're working full time on making sure we have an economic recovery here. So anyway, he's there and he brings his little sign. He makes his presentation. Uh, Roosevelt tells him, <clears throat> you're trying to get me to cut taxes. And if I do that, uh, my enemies are going to think that I've been beaten. Uh, they'll think that uh, I'm on the run and uh, I'll be dragged out of this office uh, by a man on horseback. Uh, in other words, I guess a military man with a, a coup. Uh, and uh, Morgenthau, of course, is arguing back. Oh, no, Mr. President, people would love you for this. We get this economic depression beat. And uh, Roosevelt says to him, uh, that little sign of yours is very silly. This is not about recovery. This is a matter of politics. And so uh, Roosevelt, uh, uh, Morgenthau and Haynes are uh, going out the front door of the office with their tails between their legs and... Roosevelt shouts to them, uh, for God's sake, don't be so innocent. Now, this is in the published diary of Morgenthau that was then actually even translated or uh, published in print, in print uh, with the Morgenthau's help editing it. So um, I think that's about as close as we're going to get to the truth about what Roosevelt was all about. Uh, and yet, despite the careful documentation of all these things, and the fact that these are clearly matters of fact, of a recorded uh, fact that uh, are available to scholars, uh, why is it that we haven't had a scholar yet uh, that uh, connected with an academic institution that has reported these things? And there are many tomes on the subject of the Great Depression uh, and yet, uh, mine is the first uh, to go into documenting uh, this kind of history. Uh, and I can assure your listeners that uh, there is much more to it than I've been able to relate uh, in our discussion this morning. Uh, but uh, um, that's the kind of thing. Uh, uh, it, it very much gets into the area of the provocation of wars. Uh, I told you that I didn't discover until later, after all this research, I learned as I was about to uh, uh, finish the editing, uh, well, not quite finish the editing, but, but my book was near completion uh, before I learned about uh, the book written by H.G. Wells, uh, published in 1901, uh, that laid out the plan. Uh, they laid out the plan for the Federal Reserve, for central banks, for a network of central banks uh, that would uh, control finances and money supply and so forth. Uh, an income tax, a graduated income tax on earned income, which was 
the earned income is the hallmark of the middle class, is to base the tax base of the country on the middle class, not on the upper wealthy, to have a system of uh, tax-exempt charities, so-called, that would basically be foundations or trusts that would shield the wealth of the uh, very wealthy uh, from taxation and let them do what they want. Uh, in that regard, I'd like to point out that uh, in recent years, you'll recall the uh, attacks by the IRS against the, uh, the, the taxpayers' uh, revolt uh, people. Um, you might help me on the, uh, uh, the names of those groups. Uh, uh, you but, know, the, the Tea Party. Yeah, the Tea Party. Uh, the Tea Party groups were attacked by the IRS and challenged on their tax-exempt status and so forth and denied tax-exempt status. Well, oh, yeah. uh, if they can cheat against the little guys, they can sure cheat for the big guys. Uh, there was, uh, there's covered in my book also, back in the 1950s, there was an investigation by Congress into the big tax-exempt organizations, uh, which learned that uh, uh, those organizations have very much been involved with uh, carrying the load of doing the heavy lifting and planning for how the uh, plan written by H.G. Wells to be carried into effect, uh, what's the best and most effective way to control uh, populations, what's the best and most effective way to uh, uh, curb the growth in population. You're talking about this is a, the church committee and researchers on there. I can't recall all the names, but Dodd. Actually, uh, there was a, a man by the name of Norman uh, Dodd. Dodd. Yeah, Norman Dodd. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, worked for the House committee uh, who had, uh, uh, who uh, the committee was, inquiring into the activities of such large foundations as the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Ford Foundation and so forth. And uh, the report that Mr. Dodd made in an interview that he granted shortly before his death in 1982 uh, reported that uh, the Ford Foundation had called him up when he had contacted them to uh, look into their records. They'd called him up and he met with the president of the Ford Foundation, uh, who basically uh, said that they reported to a higher authority than the U.S. government and that uh, their intentions were to uh, meld the U.S. educational system into the Soviet education system. Um, uh, going over to the Carnegie Foundation, he was invited to come up and meet with them. And uh, they had a new young president who uh, perhaps foolishly, from his standpoint, uh, suggested that Dodd send somebody up there rather than sending their records down or subpoenaing them or things like that. Just send somebody up and we'll let them look at whatever they want to look at. And uh, they can be here for two or three weeks, and uh, then let's see where we are. Well, he sends a, a young woman up who actually was very sympathetic uh, to the foundations, uh, a young woman lawyer, and what she found uh, were such things as uh, 
in the early papers, the early years of the Carnegie Endowment. They had spent uh, from 1900 to 1910 or thereabouts, uh, that first decade of the 20th century, uh, they were studying uh, what conditions are best for uh, molding the thoughts and the and controlling the public in terms of modifying their thinking. And uh, they had, uh, for example, concluded in that study that it's, uh, it helps a great deal to do that if you have a big war. Uh, if there's a big war going on, then you can really take control of the uh, civil uh, population. Um, and uh, another thing that this uh, young woman found when she went there is that uh, now, this was in the 1950s that she was going back to look at those records. Uh, Dodd had told her uh, basically what to look for and what records to check. She found a, uh, a, a letter written from the head of the Carnegie Endowment to President Wilson in 1917, right at the time that the U.S. was getting into the World War I, sending men over to Europe to fight. Uh, even though he had said that he wouldn't do that uh, uh, during his election process. But nevertheless, that letter from Carnegie's foundation uh, had said, make sure the law, the, that you don't let the war end too soon. Uh, uh, that's bad enough in itself. But when I put the fact of the matter that it was uh, not long after we started that, that uh, uh, a young man in the U.S. Army at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, was infected with uh, what became known as the Spanish flu because his unit, this assistant cook in the Army, uh, was uh, then shipped with his uh, unit to Europe to Spain, in fact, as their first deployment uh, into World War I. And uh, by the time they got to their uh, Spanish uh, destination, they were uh, uh, well infected with that Spanish flu, uh, which, of course, wound up killing tens of millions of people worldwide and killed more Americans uh, than all of our wars in history put together uh, by far. Uh, and uh, uh, it seems that uh, there's very, I think, strong reason to believe that that influenza was a laboratory-made uh, means of killing uh, that proved to be very effective, uh, although uh, not as effective, apparently, as the uh, global cabal uh, had wished because it's its uh, uh, efforts and uh, uh, and desires to uh, reduce the population through the 20th century and then the 21st century have still remained very strong. They think they're way behind schedule since the world population has increased so much over and above what it was when they made the plan to exterminate all that they did not want. I can pause a little bit to... Uh, allow you to guide me if you like. I uh, 
appreciate the chance to uh, discuss these things, but they're not easy or pleasant to talk about. Uh, no, they're they're not, but they're historical. I mean, they're history, real history. And well, for well, let me move to a, a point that um, I think would would add on to what I just said in terms of uh, perhaps uh, coming to a point of uh, winding up today, if you wish to do so. Uh, in 1938, Stalin, of course, was uh, in the middle of his uh, purges of what he regarded as the uh, uh, global cabal, uh, those connected with the ruling elite and his government uh, had been trying to purge him and he began uh, purges and arrests. And uh, one of the people that he arrested was his former ambassador to, to France. And uh, that man was accused of being uh, a uh, someone trying to subvert his government. He was given a show trial. He was sentenced to death and then interrogated, as many others were, to find out what he would uh, tell about uh, those he had been working with. Well, uh, we know about this because this particular man uh, was recorded in his uh, discussions in his interrogation by another man who was a, a qualified physician to administer so-called uh, truth serums, uh, that is, medications of a nature that would enable a person to be sharp in their thinking and also uh, relaxed and uh, willing to speak freely and truthfully uh, in a hope to save their life and not be so nervous about it because they were already under death sentence that they would forget or they would misstate or something of the sort. Uh, we know about this because the man who was uh, administering the so-called uh, medications was also responsible for recording the interrogation, both the questions and the answers. And he was to make a manuscript, two copies, uh, one for Stalin and one for the head of uh, the secret police. Uh, apparently he made, in, th in this case, he made three copies and kept one on his body, uh, which was discovered uh, during World War II uh, when, uh, when the, man died, discovered by a uh, Spanish soldier there in uh, Russia fighting on the side of the Russians. It was taken back to Spain and published there in Spanish as part of a larger book. And then finally it was a, uh, translated by a Russian immigrant to the United States uh, and uh, published in softback form a small uh, a book uh, called um, 
Oh, goodness. The Red Symphony. Uh, the Red Symphony I was given a copy of by a very good man, a publisher, a publisher at the time of uh, Tragedy and Hope. Oh, yeah. Uh, the great uh, book, so well known. He, he passed that along to me. And uh, it was uh, so brilliant uh, that I had to account for it. Uh, I think that's why the man took the uh, chance with his own life that if he were found, he would certainly have been executed himself if he had, were found to have made that third copy. Uh, but uh, the interrogation showed that this uh, elitist prisoner was such a brilliant man that uh, uh, stories or, or information best we have is that he may very well have been spared execution because he was such a valuable advisor to uh, Stalin. He told him things, for example, in the interrogation that he certainly didn't know, including that, uh, that uh, Russia would be invaded by uh, Germany when Stalin at the time uh, almost surely believed that he had made a secret agreement with Germany uh, to make them allies. Uh, in any event, uh, I do a, uh, a half a chapter on that uh, Red Symphony in chapter 17 of my book. And uh, it, one of the things that it uh, makes clear, among a number of other things, is that uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, was most certainly the most highly trusted political public operative of the ruling elite uh, they had ever empowered. Uh, that he was so cunning and so capable in his communications with the public uh, that he could do things that accomplished their objectives uh, and still have the support of the people and fool them so badly that uh, he was given his head and in fact was uh, made uh, the chief operative so that he could decide how things were to be done uh, in order to accomplish uh, the goals of the of the global uh, kingmakers elite uh, or cabal and uh, uh, that uh, it's he said it had to be a special man and that special man was composed of both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, because they had to be sure that uh, even the female in the, uh, actually they called her a two-sexed person, but uh, uh, that uh, they had to be sure that his spouse would not be someone who would spill the beans uh, or divulge the truth about uh, what FDR was all about. Uh, so. Uh, that is um, the kind of thing that uh, we have to bring our heads around. Uh, I certainly had to do so myself in terms of understanding that what I had been told that our government had done all it could to protect its people, to make them as uh, well off as possible, to help them, to save them. Uh, all of those things that uh, my teachers believed, uh, 
uh, and had been told, and we're still told today, uh, were false, and that um, we had to deal with this force that had been identified way back in 1880 as a uh, um, powerful pecuniary force that dominates every nation, uh, writing laws and molding thoughts. Uh, those were the words of uh, a man practically unknown today by the name of Henry George. Uh, in fact, he was unknown at the time he wrote his famous book, published, uh, he self-published it uh, with the help of a few friends back in 1879, 1880. Uh, he had to go with 5,000 copies. And uh, uh, the book is called Progress and Poverty. Uh, it is very eloquently written and reasoned. And uh, I had never heard of it. I had never heard of him until I had uh, learned about it uh, by putting my hand on it in the library, public library, and uh, picking it up and learning then that it was uh, by far the greatest selling book on economics ever written. It's not really exactly about economics, although it's on economic topics and particularly about public policy. Um, and telling how wrong most basic uh, theories of public policy were, uh, how the public was led down the wrong path at every opportunity to believe the wrong things, uh, to initiate, initiate the wrong political support and so forth. Uh, and he uh, argues very effectively that that is done by this powerful pecuniary force that writes laws and molds thoughts in every nation. Uh, that's about as much as he could say about it, and he says it uh, just in one paragraph in the last chapter of the book, after he had shown that, for example, the Malthusian theory that overpopulation causes poverty uh, is uh, uh, completely wrong. He uh, takes it apart uh, in very convincing terms, as he does a number of other theories as well, and, uh, and finally winds up explaining that poverty is worst uh, right around the areas of the greatest wealth. And those are the, the reason for that is that those of great wealth usually buy up all of the unoccupied land around them and they hold it off the market. Uh, and he points out that uh, the uh, people who have to work for a living, those who are not wealthy, uh, especially those who are poor, uh, need land in order to, uh, uh, to support their families. They can be productive if they have land to work on, but if they don't, uh, then they're basically left uh, looking for handouts or whatever work the rich will give them at whatever wages the uh, rich will give them which ordinarily is only subsistence wages uh, because the wealthy want them to stay uh, impoverished and therefore uh, obligated to work for them at, uh, <clears throat> at those uh, low wages. Uh, and he proposes a solution to that 
I won't go into it. I do devote an entire chapter to that book and to uh, uh, its, its great influence uh, on the world. It sold more than two billion copies between 1880 and uh, 1900 and uh, made that man so popular and wealthy enough to move to, from California where he became bankrupt as a uh, during the Great Depression of the 1870s, his newspaper failed, and he went back to New York where he uh, had been for a few years uh, failing then at the time uh, during that Great Depression. And uh, uh, yet he became so influential that he was begged and entreated to run for mayor of New York City. And... Uh, uh, that's another story, too, that I detail in my book. But uh, You know, Wayne, I think that the uh, I know that the information that that you present in your book is is uh, serious. It's heavy um, and it's somewhat disappointing and it's uh, very eye opening, disappointing in the fact that this kingmaker cabal as you described the secret elite the rulers you know i'll call them the the bankers that go all the way back in history it's it's very sobering for the all-american individual to even come to terms with the construct that we're born into and the history of this uh construct but i think that you have to be able to properly classify things. You have to be aware of what is going on in the big wide world. You have to be able to properly classify things. So if you know what's going on, you'll know what to do. I believe that as a fundamental philosophy. And then, well, um, not only that, uh, the time my book came out in 2011, we didn't have uh, the prospect in sight, in view, that we have today. Uh, I'm amazed to be able to say, as we sit here today, that uh, uh, as if by miracle, uh, we have, uh, for the first time in my lifetime, an elected president uh, that was not put in office, uh, at least under the pledge of some kind or other to the global cabal, to the kingmaker's cabal. Uh, and uh, I had come to the view some years back uh, during the writing of my book or thereafter that we could not have a president actually capable of freeing us from this cabal uh, if he were put in office by the cabal, uh, as appears to have been the case in each case uh, previously. So I had uh, come to the view that maybe maybe a wealthy person of great dedication uh, might come to the fore, but I, I didn't have any great hopes that one would. And lo and behold, uh, my ears got points on the top uh, when I first heard that Donald Trump was thinking of running for president, uh, not necessarily because I had such a high opinion of him, but he at least met, met the uh, requirement that he'd have to have his own money 
uh, if he were to be able to prevail in the presidential race uh, without having the support of the so-called establishment. Uh, that uh, at least back in the 1880, the, time, the same time Henry George's book came out, um, apparently the uh, uh, kingmakers decided that they could no longer just depend upon uh, controlling the uh, presidential candidate of one party. They had to have both of them uh, at all times. They had, for example, in 1880, they got James Garfield, which was a revolt in the Republican uh, convention. Uh, and James Garfield, of course, uh, uh, had the potential and the objectives of being uh, a, a truly great president and reforming our finances, as he said in his inaugural address. And uh, they shot him uh, within three months of his inauguration or thereabouts. And uh, the shooting wasn't successful, and so they had to have their physicians uh, poison him uh, with, uh, uh, by examining his wounds daily uh, with their bare fingers. Uh, so, um, in any event, uh, this is uh, a uh, tremendous opportunity that we have since 2016. I've uh, jokingly said that we really, I'm still exhilarated from having dodged the bullet in 2016 because uh, things were getting very dark in this country in terms of the prospects and the activities of the, the government. Um, uh, in past years, but certainly since 2000, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to find a place to stop when you start going back. How bad has it been or how long? Uh, it goes back, uh, uh, it may at least goes back to 1900. And um, it's a difficult thing to have to come to grips with, especially, wow, at the time my book came out, uh, and not really even a chance to say, oh, but we're going to get them now because there really wasn't a prospect in 2011 uh, of much uh, of a bright, uh, shining light uh, of, of uh, prospects for doing that. But lo and behold, I'm, I'm fully of the belief uh, presently that uh, we do have that project uh, prospect now. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's underway with the support of a great number of very capable people and so I, I'm optimistic about our prospects at this point. Uh, it's certainly not over. Uh, it's too way too early to celebrate, and there will be difficult times. But I do think we're uh, on the road toward uh, real uh, progress in recovering uh, the ability of nations to, um, to govern for the good of the people rather than for the good of the uh, kingmakers. Um, and I... Of course, I write from time to time, as you know, on my website. It's called classicalcapital.com. Uh, it uh, has free articles there that uh, I write on more or less current events. But you'll also see at the uh, top of the home page the advertisement for my book, The Fruits of Graft, Great Depressions Then and Now. It's $25 in hardback form. Uh, that is a uh, hardback that is actually sewn bound. That is, it's not glued. Uh, it's made so that it'll last for generations because 
this information has not been provided in a book before, and uh, maybe it won't be uh, again. Uh, there are only uh, something in the neighborhood of a little, a few more than 5,000 copies out uh, in the first uh, years since, I guess, eight years. Uh, and uh, a majority of those have been sold within the last year. So I'm glad to see that uh, there's some greater interest thanks to uh, uh, people such as yourself, James. And I very much appreciate the attention to it. The information is important. Uh, it's not available in any other book. I cover not only the Great Depression, but uh, events leading up to it. I cover uh, also uh, the tech crash uh, of 2000. I covered the, uh, uh, the financial crash of 2008 and explain how each of those uh, were contrived and uh, produced and exploited. Uh, in each of those cases uh, for great, great uh, profits uh, on the uh, part of the kingmakers uh, and their operatives. Um, it's not capitalism, by the way, that is doing this. No, it no. It's mercantilism. The economic and social system the United States of America has today is not capitalism. It is mercantilism, uh, which is uh, the economy run by uh, the kingmakers cabal uh, with hidden policies and hidden operations and protected uh, criminality on their part. A lot, much of what they do is not criminal, uh, but much of it is because they exploit us in every way, including in the worst cartels. And, uh, and worse than that, I'm afraid uh, that is coming to light. So I'm uh, uh, very hopeful. $25 uh, if you get it from my website and uh, U.S. domestic shipping is free if you wish, unless you wish for uh, priority mailing. Uh, those who are in other countries uh, need to pick the correct region of the world according to the various tabs on the purchasing. I might say that I've, uh, the book has been honored uh, by uh, being named as a life-changing, transformative book. In fact, number six on the top 25 of those types of books, uh, as uh, judged by uh, one of the person I regard as the foremost reviewer of nonfiction in the United States and perhaps in the world. Uh, his name is Robert David Steele. He has a website called Phi Beta Iota uh, that... Uh, announces his views on that sort of thing, but he wrote uh, the first review of The Fruits of Graft by any public figure, and uh, gave it a, a five-star rating at that time, but just this, this year, a few months back, he was uh, uh, commissioned to give a presentation on uh, the most important books he had read of more than 2,000 over his career, and uh, actually not read, but reviewed the ones he had reviewed. And uh, of those 2,000 plus, he ranked uh, the Fruits of Graft number six. That's powerful. Importance. Uh, so I've got that noted on my website, and I'm very grateful for it. Uh, still, uh, to this time, 
no other public figure has uh, seen fit to comment on it. And so um, anything of that nature that can get the information to more people, I'm, I'm very much for it. And uh, I certainly appreciate your efforts, James, uh, in uh, this interview this morning. Well, I, thank you for saying that, Wayne. We'll put that in the notes as well. Robert David Steele, six out of 2,000. That's, that's extremely powerful. You know, I, I think the book should be required reading in high school. I think our high school uh, students in America can completely comprehend and even appreciate that. Uh, love it's very well written very well researched very well documented and it, and it really should be required reading in my opinion and you I don't believe uh, can speak intelligently and informatively on the Great Depression unless you've read this book The Fruits of Graft but that's you know my opinion and I understand and appreciate that we're all very busy and it's uh, very uh time consuming to read and we have to be very selective when what we read with the limited amount of time that we generally have but this is worth the effort and in my opinion it's it's so well documented that one sit down of a thorough reading is not uh necessarily the best way to do it i mean you could read on this book over a couple of months you know read a little bit let it sink in and and oh, that's what I did anyway. So uh, I liked it. And I shared it with my mentor before he passed away, and and uh, he had great comments on it. Um, so I, I promote it as much as I can, as often as I can, because I believe that that it should be read. Um, and I appreciate you, Wayne, and your time this morning that you shared with us. And and I look forward to you know possibly speaking again. I know that we've maybe been here an hour and a half or so but you barely we barely scratched the surface on uh some important history and you know we've all heard history repeats itself history rhymes um and and how far back do you want to go in history to look and we've gone back to 1880 or 1900 i mean i personally believe that we can go all the way back to recorded history um and the same thing happens over and over and over and, and currently today in 2019 we're just in a another iteration or another version of this construct where it, it's calculated it's constructed we almost live in a paradigm um and that, that's my personal belief, and, and you, I believe also that you have to educate yourself. You have to be aware of what's going on so you can properly classify things, and so then you can take proper action for yourself, your family, your clients, you know, and fundamentally our, our people. So I could go on, but thank you, Wayne. I appreciate you greatly. For uh, Thank you for having me, James, and uh, I look forward to our future conversations and uh, – uh, you are the representative of exactly what the book needs. That is, people have to take up the, uh, the banner and, uh, and pass this along because uh, the major media is not going to do it. Absolutely. Uh, I'm uh, very vocal about my view, as uh, many others share, I believe, that we have learned that our major media is uh, a part of the Kingmaker's Cabal. They've acquired the ownership of it. Um, it's uh, commonly said that all of our major media in, the, in America is owned by six corporations. Well, uh, my research indicates that uh, 
last I looked at least, uh, uh, all six of those has the same major shareholder. And uh, you can be sure that they, uh, uh, those uh, corporations are uh, working for a master and they are not uh, servants of the people. So uh, that's what uh, we're dealing with, and uh, uh, I'm happy to have a role in it. I, I'm as amazed as anyone else that I would be the one to write this book. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, it's uh, what fell to me, and I'm uh, really glad that I did. Yeah. And so thank you for your help in uh, calling people's uh, attention to it and passing information along. You're welcome. Well, good job, Wayne. I appreciate you and look forward to talking with you again in the future. Okay. Thanks for having me. You bet. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.